We are here um, for a class on the Holy Spirit. Um, first of all, class. Uh, you hear the word class, you think uh, uh, sitting here in some sort of, you know, academic environment, uh, uh, me downloading some information and let's moving away from this and find something else to learn to download on top of that, go to another event, download on top of that. Um, uh, in a way, we should probably not talk about having classes in the kingdom of God. Uh, uh, I'm not sure what to call them. Discipling moments, perhaps, are really better the way to define them. Um, discipling, in Jesus' mind, not only affected what you thought, but it affected how you lived. And um, uh, this is not a simply a cerebral exercise. Although, in saying that, I will uh, strongly encourage you, and I see some of you have this, and I would encourage the rest of you to do it. It's up to you. Uh, you saw my, I hope you read my email. I meant what I said in that thing. Uh, um, I just kind of preparing your mind that this, this is, you know, this, this thing, you have to engage this thing. Um, uh, I'm not teaching a graduate course in theology on the Holy Spirit, although uh, many of the things that would be in a graduate class I'm going to talk about and, uh, because it's important. And um, uh, you'll find, uh, in, in, uh, you know, if you think clearly, you act clearly. That's the way Christianity is framed. You'll notice that Paul, in all of his letters, if you pay attention, he always gives us kind of the deep theology, and then he says, now, because of all of this way of thinking, the way God wants you to think, here's how it affects your life on a practical level. Well, I will try to uh, mimic that framework as well. But it starts with your ability to think uh, healthily and substantially and with integrity, and, uh, uh, and I'm hoping uh, uh, to, to kind of draw you along with some of this. Uh, but part of that is take some notes. Uh, you're not going to remember this next week, all these things I'm going to get into, any more than you can download it unless you have photographic memory and that is you just, everything you hear, everything you read just is implanted and you can recall it a year later. 99.999999% uh, of the people on the face of the earth cannot do that. That means we actually have to write notes, we have to memorize, we have to study, we have to rethink it through. I have uh, multiple exposures to it before it actually begins to make sense and, and go through this learning curve. Uh, so please, please do more than just sit there and um, uh, don't go to sleep. Stay home and take a nap if that's what you want to do. Uh, get in here. Let's engage this thing. Let's make this thing happen. And um, uh, God has some things for you. And I, I am going to do my best um, to, to begin to ease into this and, and uh, hopefully share some things. Obviously, this is not exhaustive. Uh, I, I was literally uh, on, on some very serious levels and on some very intense levels been studying the Holy Spirit ever since I was in college. And, uh, you know, since about the age of 23, which I will reflect on uh, here in just a little bit, explain why that was true. Uh, I'm 53 now. I've, I've read more books on it than I can, uh, uh, can, can, can mention to you. Uh, um, and, I, I, there's, you know, things I get, things I don't get, uh, things I'm perplexed by, and things that... Uh, uh, you know, I've changed my mind on. Uh, uh, I, I haven't taught the Holy Spirit in a, in a few years, probably a four years, five years. I can tell you in the four, last four or five years, I've kind of changed and tweaked some things. And so uh, last time I taught it, uh, it's going to be a little bit different than I taught it back then. Um, but the, the, I, I still have, have somewhat the same framework on trying to ease into this thing, as I called it in the email, the kind of a Holy Spirit, Spirit 101. Um, so let me start with two questions. How many of you have ever had a, a class, I don't mean just one, but a series of classes, a study on the Holy Spirit? Go ahead and raise your hand. 
Okay, how many of you in raising your hand are raising your hand because you were involved in that small group that studied Forgotten God last semester? Anyone in that small group last semester? Okay, some of you. Uh, that, would, that, would, that would count, by the way. Uh, it was a whole semester kind of going through and uh, looking at some basic premises uh, uh, Francis Chan talked about. Um, the, uh, well, let me, let me, let's kind of go here. Um, title of that book was Forgotten God. I think that's uh, a, a legitimate title dealing with this issue. Um, Francis Schaeffer said this, and I uh, somewhat resonate with this. How many churches and ministries would not even notice and would carry on exactly, uh, in exactly the same manner as usual, even though every reference to the dependence on the Holy Spirit and to prayer were suddenly to disappear from the pages of the New Testament? You get the idea. Um, I think when it comes down to uh, those of us who claim to have certain beliefs about the Holy Spirit, uh, if you're like me, growing up as I have in church, well, I heard very little of anything about the Holy Spirit. It was, uh, in my heritage, um, uh, basically, uh, it wasn't ignored. It was perp- intentionally sidestepped. Um, and uh, to, to my deep regret, um, and I think there are certain reasons for that, perhaps the, uh, because of all the aberrations, the things associated with the Holy Spirit that seem to uh, be excessive, and so the way to stay away from some of those excesses is to basically the theology or the principle, the philosophy, is just don't talk about it, then you don't have to worry about stepping off in the wrong direction. Because when you start talking about it, then people start thinking about it, then they start doing things they ought not do. Um, um, although I don't think anyone would actually say that's what they do, I, I feel that basically behind much of the, the disappearance of, of, uh, of the Holy Spirit in our dialogue, uh, at least those of us who grew up in the Restoration Movement, Churches of Christ, although in the early part of the Restoration Movement it was a very prevalent under, uh, uh, talked about and, and uh, recurring theme, but in, uh, by the time I came around, uh, you know, I was born in 1957 uh, uh, in that church context, uh, really... It, other than saying this is what it doesn't do, there was really very little said about it. And um, so I really grew up rather ignorant about this. Um, but I, I will tell you that the truth is, uh, uh, not talking and not studying something and not opening your mind and going through a learning curve on any issue of scriptures, uh, doesn't, you know, that silence doesn't save you from, uh, you know, going down uh, distracted and false pathways, uh, I think it makes you vulnerable to that. I think when we actually start engaging the words of God and actually engaging and uh, uh, trying to explore what this means, what the Spirit means in my life, I find myself more capable of, of uh, sifting through and filtering and, and uh, coming to some understanding and, and uh, uh, I think prevents me in many ways from uh, getting off uh, uh, into things that are just you know, maybe not associated with the Spirit that perhaps so often is said uh, belongs to it. Um, And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, having grown up in that, when I got to college, uh, you know, I'd left God when I was in high school, really in junior high. I came to college. uh, uh, God found me. I found him. And uh, in the context of that, I, I, uh, uh, when I came back uh, into the, you know, searching for God and and asking the hard questions in my life and uh, 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 you know, people like C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and people like that trying to, you know, that I read and got me to thinking again and, and processing who is Jesus and really being convicted that, yeah, he actually is who he claims to be. I really started believing it. 
Um, I did so in the context, I started visiting churches um, for about three, four years. Uh, I was very uh, deeply involved in what people would term a charismatic church background. And um, so I began to encounter uh, almost, the, the, almost the antithesis to Church of Christ, which was my fundamental upbringing, uh, where I was in a, in a, in a, in a, in a church context where uh, the Holy Spirit was almost every other word. Uh, spirit this, spirit that, spirit was, you know, everywhere doing things. And it was overwhelming. And I, will, and I will be sharing about some of those experiences, and it has influenced some of my thinking about how I look at certain scriptures. And, um, uh, and so I share part of that because as I bring some of those things up, I want you to know that I'm not just speaking hypothetically what I've read someone else doing. I've actually engaged those things. And um, uh, so all those things that you've heard about, uh, I've probably done or believed on some level or another uh, in a serious enough way uh, that uh, I can tell you how I got to believing whatever and uh, said, so we'll, we'll kind of sift through some of that and, and uh, uh, talk about it. Um, <clears throat> but I also emerged with a, a much more, I don't know, uh, active uh, understanding of what the Spirit is doing in my life. Um, I think when it comes down to us, if we have any view of the Holy Spirit at all, which is probably downloaded, not really searched and thought out uh, for most people, uh, it really is like God just kind of gave us a paperweight as, a, you know, a congratulations for joining the club. You know, he just kind of gives us this deposit called the Spirit, and there it is, and just sits there inanimately. And, uh, you know, so I've got this little uh, paperweight on my desk uh, to say that I, you know, donated for the, to the cause. And um, uh, I think there's a great deal more to it than that, and we'll talk about that as we go through this semester. Um, what strikes me as I get into the New Testament is that uh, talking about the Spirit was embedded in the very language of the first century church. Starting with Jesus himself is what we're about to enter into. Uh, but here, you know, you see that it was very common. It was not uh, avoided, but it was uh, a sought-after way of defining the, 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 the Christian lifestyle and Christian walk to talk about the Spirit's activity in one's life and define one's life through the Spirit of God the Holy Spirit. You know, phrases like, do not quench the Spirit. Uh, let me ask you, do you have any idea what that means? We don't even talk about the Spirit. How can you know whether you're doing it or not? Um, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. They're in the context of this letter of Galatians where they struggle with all these you know, Christ plus religion issues and circumcision, all this. He, he plants this concept in there that we are to keep in step with the Spirit. Are you keeping in step with the Spirit? If we've never really studied it and really engaged what the Spirit means in my life, how do you know that you're keeping us up with the Spirit? Does it mean you just show up to church and show up to classes like this? Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, notice the converse that be filled with the Spirit. By the way, it's a command by Paul. You look at the, the, the grammar of that. You are to be filled with the Spirit. How do you know when you're filled with the Spirit? Do you even have the Spirit? What difference does it make if you are filled with the Spirit? You feel drunk? How would I know? Unless I've actually spent time engaging these things and really meditating on them and thinking about them in context and, and trying to come to some understanding in my life. But I, again, just the, the basic understanding that it was the common language of the first century Christians. Why is it not the common language of 21st century Christians? 
and churches of Christ, if that's your background. I will tell you that these lessons that I'm going to bring are, are building blocks. So it's kind of a 101 approach. Um, I'm not going to presume that you know anything. So if I say something that seems rather uh, elementary, I'm not at all insulting your intelligence. I'm just trying to take us all along, depending on where you're at along this thing. But uh, if you were like me at your age, uh, when I was your age, uh, you know, I, 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 I didn't know anything other than how to spell it. In fact, and I'm not being facetious, I actually thought his first name was Holy and his second name was Spirit. Some of you think? Um, but I did. I, I, I was that ignorant of, of this idea. And um, you know, it sounds stupid, but no one ever told me different. And uh, when I read it, I, I just seemed Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit. Or Holy Ghost. You know, I kind of thought it was an apparition, you know, and and uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost and this kind of trotting around uh, as my paperweight. Um, and um, let me ask you this, uh, just a generic question. Uh, when you hear the word Holy Spirit, now, um, to me, if you, you were to play the, you know, the game word association, just tell me what ideas, concepts, thoughts come to your mind. Just anything. Just throw them out one at a time so I can hear you. Holy Spirit, what comes to your mind? A dove. A dove, okay. Okay, you're referring to Romans chapter 8. Okay, what else? Say again. Influences you, okay. Okay, how, how, kind of associated with my conscience and, and how I sense things. The Trinity. That's an interesting word. We'll get to that in a minute. Anything else? What other things come to your mind? Think, there's a lot of other things come to my mind. That, you know, you guys are giving all these nice biblical answers. Um, what are some of the things, step back, when you hear Holy Spirit in our culture with what you think, why do you think we have avoided all this? What are the things that we keep seeing thrown in the pathway of defining Holy Spirit uh, that we uh, feel a bit uh, tense about. Stuff like speaking in tongues. Okay, speaking in tongues. Okay, what else? Indwelling. What else? What do you think of? A guide. Kind of a pillar of cloud at uh, day and a pillar of fire at night, kind of just lights around and you just follow. Say again. Okay, yeah, oh yeah. Um, in my generation, they call them the holy rollers. I remember uh, we did, uh, we did, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of the, the exciting pew jumper, you know, church services. Uh, uh, very emotionally charged. Uh, I did uh, mission work in Jamaica for some years. Um, and there was this church. I mean, it rocked. I mean, it was uh, unbelievable. And we could, you know, we were probably a couple miles away. And this, uh, over the reggae music that you heard almost 24-7 was, you know, when this church was in session, you knew it. And they all wore white, and it was just really something. Uh, I have those images uh, growing up, whether it was in a tent, whatever, you know. 
uh, the healings, the miracles, the tongue speaking, the swooning in the spirit, uh, things like this. And we'll talk about all of that in this class, uh, what I've experienced and what I think is, is and all that kind of stuff. Um, um, point is, there's a lot of things associated with the Holy Spirit. Um, is it just a big free-for-all? Is it just whatever you want it to be, depending on whatever church group you're in, so just buy into it? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think that we ought to be thoughtful uh, 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 and substantial in our study about this and, and really uh, kind of work through some things. Um, I think ignorance is not bliss. I am thankful, as I said in the email, that God can bless us even in our ignorance. In other words, even if I don't understand what the Spirit is doing for me, the Spirit can do it for me. And I'm thankful. It's by grace. It's a gift. And even if I don't fully get Him, I don't fully get God, but I'm sure glad He's in my life doing what He's doing. Um, but uh, I think there is a deep, richer blessing in understanding that God is doing this in my life, and it helps me be more directive and more substantial in my walk with God. Um, but what happens if you leave the Holy Spirit out of the picture, or rather anemic about your understanding of it? I think that it would make your walk with Jesus to that degree anemic. And so I think it is worth studying. So let's kind of ease into this thing and kind of explore together and kind of go through this learning curve together. Uh, yes, take your notes. Yes, you can ask your questions. Sometimes you ask a question, I might put you on hold because I know we're going to talk about it later, so I may give you a quick now and move on and we'll come back to it kind of thing. Other times, uh, you know, it may just be the relevant thing at the moment and I'll give it my best shot. Some things I'll have to go back and maybe think about. I've certainly been asked a lot of questions about the Holy Spirit in the past that, uh, hmm, you know, really good thought and not sure. And some things I've uh, got ideas on that I didn't before. Anyway, here we go. Uh, a place to begin. The Shema. Uh, it's found in the Old Testament. Anyone know what the Shema is? Anyone know what Shema means in Hebrew? You do, whether you realize it or not. It's what I lack. Here. Now, is there a text you can remember that's very famous in the Old Testament out of Deuteronomy that starts with here? Huh? Did someone say it? Not out here? Oh, here. No, no. It's here. I might have thought you said here when you said here. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? What did he say? This. Is there a pecking order to the... To, to the, to the, uh, the importance, the priority of truth. Yes. And Jesus said so. But he didn't stop there. Remember he went on and said, by the way, you didn't ask for the first and second, but I'm going to give you both because you can't, you can't disassociate them. And love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love people. Every time if you were a Jew and you got together to worship in a synagogue, you quoted this verse to this day, they still do it. That's how they start every service. So if you go to a service and you have to be in a, in a synagogue and it's in Hebrew, uh, and when they start off, you can say, hey, that's the Shema. And they'll be rather impressed by you, though you don't understand a word they're saying. They're just quoting the Shema. Now, but immediately I find myself at somewhat of a dilemma. Why? 
Say that last part again. They wouldn't accept Jesus as being the Son because they denied Him being the Messiah, correct? Okay, but what about the Holy Spirit? They don't. Old Testament talk about the Holy Spirit? How about in Genesis? In the very beginning, what was the creating power? The Spirit of God moved across the void. The Spirit has been very prevalent in the Old Testament. Um, they had a very strong theology of the Holy Spirit. But you're right, I would say it was not a... It was a, a, you know, not Trinitarian, but uh, dietarian uh, view. God the Father, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the Spirit of God. Although I'm interested in the, in the, uh, the progressive revelation as God revealed himself, what they really understood precisely about the Holy Spirit. Um, but they certainly knew it was it's talked about, it's referenced, it's, it's prophesied about in Old Testament. Prophets all talked about the Holy Spirit of God. Um, so it's very prevalent. Uh, if you think it's not in there, then it's just one of those misnomers. Um, um, there's still something that troubles me, though. In fact, it goes back to Genesis chapter 1, I think, verse 26. In the creation, what did God say when it came to creating man? Let us create man in our own image. Plural. Does that bother you? Lord, your God is one. That's the basis of belief in both Judeo and Christian roots. Jesus reinforced it. It's primary. Yet, it speaks in terms of God being a plurality. So let's start there, the big picture, and then let me just kind of walk through a few things. What do you learn by simply being exposed to that simple idea? God refers to himself to plurality, but he is one. What do you learn about God? Because really, when you talk about what is the Holy Spirit like, you're asking the, the broader question, so what is God like? What is the nature of God? That's where you have to start. What do you learn? It's more familiar to you than you realize when I start talking about it. Yes. How does that phrase act to you? That God is unity and diversity. You ever hear that phrase? You ever hear that phrase in the context of the Christian framework? Say again? The church. Interesting. Now, let's just kind of explore this for just a moment. The body of Christ, 1 Corinthians 12, though we are many, we are one body, the spiritual body of Christ. So it already begins to speak about this principle of God, of we being a cohesive oneness, well, at least by spiritual insight of God, intent, yet recognizes the, 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 the multiplicity of personalities and individuality and gifts and directions and things that we do, belonging to that one, that framework of oneness. Now, does it ever dawn on you that the things that God creates carry his own fingerprint in it? Does that make sense to you? 
Um, should it surprise us that God is far more complex than what he creates? And it's very important. Why John 17 says this oneness, Father, I pray that the disciples will be one just like you and I are one. May they be in us as I am in you and you are in me. I mean, I'm talking about intimacy. A relationship between the Father, the Son, and Father, Father uh, God, as that prayer is being said. And he's asking this to take place in our lives. And so you see that there is a, if you get the right thinking, theology, you get the right uh, 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 lifestyle that comes out of it. But you fragment God, what happens to us? What happens to your life? It becomes fragmented. It's unhealthy. There's things you just cannot get if you get the wrong theology. And so we speak in terms of a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. They are not identical, yet they are one and the same. Now, can you understand why, especially in the launching pad of Christianity, the first few centuries, as they were beginning to deal with these uh, uh, enormous uh, principles of Christianity that were very important to our thinking, that it created an enormous amount of conflict as they tried to find what these things meant. And so they spoke in terms of, of, uh, of how do we describe God? And so there was all of these, these uh, teachings that came out of uh, this, like in the third century, Sabellianism, that basically suggests, okay, this is how we look at it. God basically is like a Greek actor. The Greek, same Greek actor would come out and he would hold different masks. And so he would be the same actor, but he would wear one mask and then he would come out on stage again, same actor with another mask, and then he came out the stage with another mask. Um, and that, that basically the uh, Sibelians described God this way, that God came first as uh, the, uh, the, the, the Father and then he came as Jesus and then he came as the Spirit of God throughout history, uh, uh, not simultaneously, but one at a time on the stage. But then again, I have a problem with that when I begin to think of, for example, the baptism of Jesus. You remember that situation? For example, in Matthew 3, what happened uh, in, in that scenario? Who shows up in that scenario? First of all, you have Jesus himself as the Son, right? And when he's baptized, what happens? A visual uh, kind of a, a video plays. You get the, the, uh, the Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. Let's say as a dove. So there was a, some visual uh, event that took place that people could see, or at least John the Baptist could see. And then there was a voice from heaven that said what? This is my son whom I love, and him I am well pleased. So you see this interaction at that one moment, rather significant moment, by the way, uh, where the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are all simultaneously active. The view of they're on the stage. And so you can see how that created some problems. Say, now that, that can't be yet. There's Arianism in the fourth century that basically said, well, you know, it says that Jesus was begotten, the only begotten of God. So in other words, the, 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 the mantra was there was a time when Jesus did not exist, he was created. And that later, God the Father created Jesus, and then Jesus created uh, the Holy Spirit. And that theology was thrown out. No, you see how they're fragmenting God, and it created all sorts of problems. And by the way, that's uh, very, very common in Jehovah's Witness theology today. And then there was the uh, a tritheism. That is, suggesting that they were just three separate, distinct gods. Which, by the way... If you catch that, that's polytheism. 
no different than all the Greek mystery religions uh, uh, that you hear about uh, mythology, um, which, by the way, is uh, very common and uh, basically framework for Mormonism today. So, what do I do with this thing? Um, Trinity means threefold. It is one at the same time, unity and diversity, unity and purpose, unity and communications, unity in nature, and yet there's a distinguishing between them. Closures. Spell this out in capital letters. The Holy Spirit is a person. He is not enthusiasm. He is not courage. He is not energy. He is not personification of all good qualities like Jack Frost, the personification of cold weather. Actually, the Holy Spirit is not a personification of anything. He has individuality. He is one being, not another. He has will and intelligence. He has hearing. He has knowledge. He has sympathy and ability to love and see and think, if you know the Scriptures when it refers to the Holy Spirit. He can hear, speak, desire, grieve, rejoice. He is a person. And so I find that the Spirit can be grieved. I find that He can possess knowledge. And He doles that knowledge out to human beings. That He has purpose. That He determines what gifts you have. He intentionally decides, I want this person to do this, and this person to do this, and this person to do this, within the one body of Christ. He says the Spirit does this. And so, R.A. Torrey says, if we think the Holy Spirit only has an impersonal power or influence, then our thought will constantly be, how can I get a hold of and use the Holy Spirit? But if we think of him in the biblical way as a divine person, a relationship with God, infinitely wise, infinitely holy, infinitely tender, then our thought will constantly be, how can the Holy Spirit get hold of and use me? You see, that's very practical implications how you see the Holy Spirit. It's not just something argued about and hashed out, decide who had the right truth, who didn't. They understood that where they came down on understanding the Holy Spirit actually affected what their life looked like day in and day out with other people as they lived. Someone said it's somewhat like the atom. You know, physics, atom. Now, Democritus called uh, it atomos, meaning that which cannot be cut or split or divided in any way. Of course, with our technology, we've actually been able to split atoms, haven't we? And we find out they're actually made of multiplicity of things. You've got, what, the neutron, the proton, the nucleus. That it actually is, even the smallest element of our universe has complexity to it. And that reflects the unity and diversity of God. And it does matter. So, a good place to begin. He is God. He is a person whom you relate to. And if you have that understanding, not a force like in Star Wars, not some sort of kind of, you know, hovering helicopter of power that kind of zap people with abilities as need, like superheroes kind of stuff. Um, uh, there's a lot of Christians that think that way. Uh, it's a wonder we're so deranged spiritually in, in America today. 
really across the globe. Now, we'll start this. I said this about heaven when I uh, preached on that uh, two weeks ago, Sunday. Um, I said, if you want to learn about a topic, what's one of the first things you ought to do? Anyone remember who was there? If you want to learn about any topic in terms of how God sees it, where's the, where's the primary place to start? Take a stab at it. Yes. Ask what Jesus thinks. Read the letters in red. Um, in heaven, because he's been there, and he knows if what we say about him is true. We come to Holy Spirit because he knows him personally. He and the Spirit are one. So if, a, if I listen to what Jesus says, the Holy Spirit, it's a good place to begin to gain some understanding of what he wants us to understand about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus had uh, uh, referenced the Holy Spirit throughout his ministry, if you pay attention. For example, John 7, Feast of Tabernacles, it was the greatest uh, last day of the, of the feast. He stood up and says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, and, and wells of living water will flow through him. And then John says, gives a parenthetical, which John is used to doing, saying, let me define it for you. Of this he spoke of the Holy Spirit, who has not yet been given, because Christ has not yet been uh, glorified. In other words, Jesus had not yet been through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so there was this already, Jesus already alluding to something that's coming. That's very tangible and very real and very profound because all the Old Testament prophets kept prophesying about this time. The Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on all mankind. And they awaited this moment with bated breath. I mean, it was an exciting moment when, when God broke in and poured out His Spirit upon all, all His people. Now, this is for free, but uh, did the Holy Spirit show up in people in the Old Testament? Yes. How do you think prophets prophesied? What about uh, uh, Samson? Where do you think he got a strength from? What's different between the Old Testament and New Testament is that God was very selectively uh, endowing people with the Spirit of God. Kings, prophets, ju the judges... But the promise of the New Testament is that everybody gets it. Anyone in the kingdom gets this. Everybody. Whatever it is, whoever he is, we get it. Now, Jesus uh, was doing some very specific things. The greatest concentration of teaching of Jesus on the Holy Spirit is found in John 14, 15, and 16. Now, does anyone remember what the context of John 14, 15, and 16 is? I heard a voice. Okay, the Last Supper. What else took place during that time? Okay, washing the feet. Anything else? What's the timing of it? Where does it fall in terms of the context of the history of his life on earth? Right before his death. So the, the, the shadow of the cross is completely covering his life at this juncture. I mean, it's literally knocking at the door. 
the time has come, right? And uh, it starts with that washing of the feet. It moves into this taking ownership of the the, the, the feast of the Passover and owning it himself and turning the, the Last Supper into the Lord's Supper, that which uniquely belongs to him, and redefining the whole thing through his life, what's going to happen in terms of the death, the burial, the resurrection. And Jesus, of course, is also talking about disappearing, leaving. You guys are about to go in some real grieving here. I'm about to leave. Now, put yourself in the disciples' shoes who have been following Jesus, who have given up everything to follow him, and he's telling them, by the way, I'm about to orphan you. That's the context of John 14, 15, and 16. And Jesus knows this is about to happen. And by the way, in the uh, Jewish understanding, when your rabbi left, you were considered, if you lost, if he died or whatever, you lost your connection with him as a uh, in relationship. You were considered to be an orphan. It was a very intimate, profound relationship. A lot more than simply a teacher and a student. The way we tend to think, we can take or leave him. Most would like to leave him, right? Um, not this. And so here Jesus is about to uh, enter into cataclysmic events. They're going to be thrown in absolute. Confusion, disarray, upheaval, doubt, uh, uh, testing. Um, I mean, they just run as in fear. And so Jesus, before all this happens, gets them together and says, let's talk. In the context of this, he is basically doing three things. He's comforting them, preparing them for this moment. He lets them know what happens. It's going to happen before it happens. That helps a little bit, you know. Although they didn't quite get it. He said, I'm about to... I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. We're here right now. It's about to happen. All these things I've been telling you throughout the last year or so. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be abused. I'm going to be crucified on the cross. I'm going to be put in a grave. I'm going to get up three days later. And they got none of this. They didn't want to get any of this. It was just too overwhelming to them to grasp. If he was the Messiah, Messiahs don't die. And they don't suffer. They flex their muscles and beat people up and get what they want. Right? That's why we're following you. Jesus is speaking about death. It must be metaphorical then. And so he's trying to help strengthen them to face the crucifixion. Then he's trying to also help them uh, learn some survival skills, which are known as unity and love. If you want to survive in this world, that's why he washed their feet. He wanted them to get this. If you want to survive in this world as a believer, not a watered-down believer, but a, a true believer, you've got to stay together and you've got to love one another in a way that's so unique the world wouldn't understand it. So he washes their feet and says, you get it now? You understand? And thirdly, you'll notice he spoke in concentration about the coming of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, well... Although I'm leaving, you're not really going to be orphans. And the reason you're not going to be orphans, although you, me, the rabbi, is going to physically be uh, removed from your presence, not just temporarily in the grave, but when he ascended, he was gone. He went into another dimension of life. We call it heaven. In a physical body, by the way. He says, but I'm going. That's a good thing because now I've asked the Father to send you the Holy Spirit in my stead. 
kind of think of it this way. As Jesus incarnated the presence of God in this world, so the Spirit of God incarnates Jesus in this world through us. I'll say it again. As Jesus came into the world in physical form, incarnate God in the flesh, and brought the presence of God with him. If you've seen me, uh, Jesus told Philip, you've seen the Father. We're one and the same. So stop asking where the Father is. He's right here in front of you. You're looking at him. You can touch him. But when he goes, the Holy Spirit comes, and then he infests all of us and recreates Jesus in all of us, and Jesus is still on the earth through us. There's the big framework. That's why it's important. I have a key up here. This is the key emerging, one emerging point that you've got to get. Consider it now just an empty container. I'll fill it as we go through the quarter. And here's the statement. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. I would like you to actually repeat this after me out loud. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. Okay, rather than now just mimicking it, I want you to actually think about while you say it again. The Spirit's work is centered in Jesus Christ. Now you've got this nice framework, and I would like to spend the rest of the semester filling that up. But this is extremely uh, important filter to use. And we'll see it played out even as we deal with John 14, 15, 16. Jesus is going to keep hammering it out. The Spirit's come to do what I want it to do. If the Spirit's doing something, it'll point not to Himself, but to me. Jesus, the Son of God. And if you get and understand that and understand the substance of it, it also will help you filter out all the myriad of things, I think, that tend to be associated with the Spirit that kind of give you some, I'm not sure, is that from God or not? And you can think for yourself and filter for yourself these things. So let's just go to one text. I think I did this first on that PowerPoint. Yes, let me do this first. As I'm talking about John 14, 15, and 16, and we'll end with this, and we'll pick up actually in the context of John 14, and look at that specific passage. Basically, Jesus goes through a series of five promises of the Holy Spirit. But I think it's important to understand context. You know, they talk about exegesis and hermeneutic. Have you heard those words? Okay, let me define them for you. Exegesis. When you read the Bible, you ask the question, what did it mean? Back then, in context. That was when Paul wrote a letter, he wrote a letter to, say, the church at Corinth or Philippi or Ephesus. And he wrote it for a very specific reason, or what they call an occasion. What was the occasion of him writing this letter? Obviously, there was something going on in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi, whatever, or Thessalonica, that prompted Paul to say what he said in those letters. There was an actual context, a social context in which he was addressing and when you read the letters, you're hearing one side of the phone conversation, but if you pay attention to the context, you can understand what took place on the other side of the conversation by what was going on in that church. That's the original context, what it originally meant, past tense. I must first always ask that question. If I want to do a healthy, thorough, uh, thoughtful study of scriptures, I must first ask the exegetical question, so what did it actually mean when it was first written? 
context is important, the social context, what was going on in, in their lives, what's going on in the context of the letter. Uh, all those things matter. Hey, by the way, you have to do some little sweat equity to get there. Um, but then I asked a hermeneutical question. Now that I understand its original intent, now how do I then do the second bridge of applying that to my life today in the 21st century? Hmm. But if I don't do a good job with the exegetical, I'm going to be really warped when I get to the hermeneutic. Understand? Um, so this is part of the exegetical. When we're reading all these passages, Remember, who is Jesus actually talking to specifically at this moment? He's not speaking to the uh, masses that are following him. He has sequestered himself with just the twelve. And he's talking to these men that we term apostles. The apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, I just wanted just to see that there's some uniqueness to this. And I have to maintain some sort of context with this because as I'm reading these passages about what the Spirit's doing, I have to figure out, well... So how does that then apply to me? I see how it applied to them, but does it transition to me or is it just them that it was referring to? You with me? Make sense? Okay, for example, I look at this text out of John 17. Here's Jesus praying, and notice what he prays. I have revealed you, God, the Father, he's talking to his Father in heaven, to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now we're going to see in a minute, he's speaking specifically about the twelve. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now uh, they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I, have, uh, I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. Uh, they knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, uh, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. And then he goes on to say, Now my prayer is not for them alone, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That refers to the rest of us. So already Jesus, even in his prayer, he distinguishes there's something unique about these 12 men and their role and how God interacted with their life. Then he would go on to say this, for example, in Acts chapter 1. Luke, who wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then his second, cha- his second chapter of the book was the book of Acts. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, the Gospel of Luke, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through notice, the Holy Spirit to the apostles, not just to anybody, but specifically to these men. He had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men. Who did Jesus show up to specifically? These twelve. And and then there were some other disciples that, that, that got into this, like the women. In fact, the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women, right? Um, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, about a month and a half, and spoke about the kingdom of God. And then I had the word message. I don't know why that got stuck in there. Bad typing. Um, but again, notice the unique. And then finally, he would say this in Acts 10. Uh, this is, and we're going to actually look through very carefully at the book of Acts later on in this semester. Um, Acts chapter 10, this is the event about Cornelius. That, that event happened, and it says, uh, Peter is speaking to this house, and he says, we are witnesses of everything uh, he, Jesus, did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Those we're witnesses. We, apostles, and I'm one of those, Peter, uh, Paul, so Peter says, and they killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, no, but by witnesses whom God had already 
chosen by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There was historical reality of relationship between these men and Jesus, and it gave them unique qualifications to do certain things that no one else on the face of the earth could do. You, you get the idea? There was a context to this. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. So as we enter into John 14, 15, and 16, that's who Jesus is talking to, this unique group of people. And he's going to make certain promises, and the Spirit is going to be a primary generator of these promises. And we're going to see what he's promising the Spirit's going to do. Like, if you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. We'll stop here. But there's the first promise. If you'd like to do a little homework between now and next week, I would suggest you read through chapters 14, 15, and 16. It will not take you that long. And every time you see the word Spirit, or Spirit of God, or Spirit of Christ, or uh, Holy Spirit's not in there, um, um, stop and, and, and notice what it says about it. And, and you'll note that there are five promises that follow through that Jesus gives them because the Spirit is going to come into their life. So ask yourself, ask yourself the who, what, when, where, and why. And we're just going to kind of walk through that, and that's where we're going to begin. And yes, I do think that there is a hermeneutic of applying those promises to your life. But you have to be very careful. It's not just a big free-for-all, anything you want. There's certain things he's saying and certain things he's not saying. Okay? Let's pray.